I didn't think I'd see you again so soon. What an unexpected pleasure. Come in and let's finish what we started. If memory serves, we left off at a very intriguing part of the book. Humana, humana, humana. Now we're getting into the good stuff. Get your pen and paper ready, gentlemen. Chapter 8. The Line. It can hardly be expected, in a book such as this, which may fall into alien hands, that we reveal any of the standard male approaches, some of which, though slightly hoary, are still paying off nightly. But, without breach of confidence, we feel that the topic should be discussed generally. We counsel observation of one basic tenet. Never change a winning pitcher, or, in other words, if you are doing well with your own personal approach, don't seek to alter or embroider on same if the results satisfy. Generalities some general concepts should be noted. These are, number one, tailor the line to the girl. Never try to bring down a tigress with birdshot and never shoot a dove with an express rifle. Number two, pace yourself. In other words, stop to observe the effect of your pitch and don't fall in love with the sound of your own voice. Number three, have at least one alternate approach. Girls sometimes compare notes, and if you happen to date a girlfriend of a girlfriend, they can crucify you in your absence. It is a myth that girls don't talk about their affairs. Not that they frequently emit surrender in so many words to another chum, but they do talk. Number four, Never introduce subjects which may be of interest in themselves unless you are merely passing time in a public place. Fine conversation may be indulged in after the fact, if you are so minded. Only a fool would introduce a controversial subject when alone with a lovely pigeon. Religion and politics are to be avoided like mumps. Around election time, Democrats are loath to go to bed with Republicans, and vice versa, except for the purposes of conversion. Decide for yourself whether you want an adversary or an accomplice. Number five, do not appear to possess in too great a degree any of the following virtues. A, affluence. B, reliability. C. Sentimentality. D. Thoughtfulness. E. Ambition. F. Love for children. G. Or being too damn handy around the house. The reason why a revelation of the above traits can operate against you is because these are what a girl seeks in a husband, and, taking a long view of you, she may deny you your immediate reward and sell you out for the prospect of a handful of thrown rice. Flattery. Flattery is the art of telling welcome lies, but such lies must contain just enough truth to make them credible. A certain 
sprightliness and gaiety should be infused into the moment of delivery. If there is a halting or reluctant air about its presentation, a lie or compliment is robbed of its potency. Don't lose out for want of that last little dash of enthusiasm, the big pink bow that makes a Christmas gift of an article of merchandise. Flattery is an inexpensive commodity. The cost of materials is reasonable since words are cheap and the labor is your own. Next to charm and money, the ability to flatter is one of the most appealing traits that women appreciate in a man. It is unlike the other two noble attributes in that it is most effective when undetected. If it is noticed favorably, it is confused with natural charm and often serves just as well. The astute flatterer must, first of all, be observant. A woman likes to feel that she is noticed. Approving references to her hair, her perfume, her clothes, etc. never fail to please, but are doubly pleasing when ornamented with particulars. Generalities are for the inept or husbands. For instance, if she is wearing an attractive gown, the advanced flatterer will venture that it is by Dior or Balencia. Should his guest prove correct, she is pleased and impressed. And if not correct, she is successfully flattered. So, either way, he wins. Playing footsie. The complete specialist in the art of conning a girl is, to our way of thinking, Bernie B. His particular flim-flam, if used for openers, requires the setting of a beach or swimming pool. He begins literally at her feet, remarking of their beauty immediately. Since almost no one has pretty feet anyway, she will be surprised, but will sit still for it. Then Bernie strengthens the deception by being specific. If, as sometimes happens, her second toe extends further than her big toe, known as the great toe in England, he launches into a cadenza which he calls praise of the second phalange, scuttling back to the ancient Greeks for sculptural references that alone rival the beauty of her tootsies. This unique bamboozle works equally well with the compliment-hearted Belle or just plain Jane. Best of all, it helps to get her shoes and stockings off on future dates since any woman likes to put her best foot forward. Every change of a woman's hairdo is of earth-shaking importance to her. If you make a point of remarking that she had it cut shorter than formerly or has changed her part from one side to the other, she will be delighted that you remembered. It is not always necessary that you approve of these little changes. In fact, sometimes disapproval gently expressed with thoughtful, constructive criticism can convey a greater concern on your part than casual praise. Besides, it takes longer and she enjoys being the center of attention. Color filter. Upon meeting for the first time, a girl whose hair is currently blonde, you can indulge in a two-edged compliment by saying that 
Ordinarily, you don't like blondes, but that somehow she is an exception. This approval of her present shade pleases her, but she also feels she has a security within herself that you would like her hair in its natural state, that you are not a victim of mere artifice, but would like her as she really is. It is possible while all the previous prattle was going on, she may have been scrutinizing your own raven temples and wondering just how to tell you that after all, gray hair is truly becoming and lends distinction to a man's appearance. If she patronizingly adds that you are only as old as you feel you are, then scratch her off your list. Anyway, she probably has a late date with some young whippersnapper still in his 40s. On the scent. The sharp bachelor must have a nose for, as well as an eye for details. He should learn to identify and remember various popular perfumes. When he compliments a woman on her choice of scent, she will no doubt wear it again. Then he should be sure to comment about it, recognizing that she has done it to please him and so establish himself as an appreciative escort. See and end delayed reaction compliment. Most women enjoy being praised for what they are, but they enjoy even more being praised for what they are not. A woman's belief is as elastic as a pelican's bill, so don't hesitate at the preposterous. It will be well received. Extol some quality she does not possess. Sometimes this offbeat homage, totally undeserved at first, may become her just due because she will try to be just what you say she is. In this way, it is possible to bring about a desired change in an otherwise attractive girl. For instance, the creature in question, though charming in many respects, might be shy and conservative with a consequently high melting point. To alter this, you should try the CNN delayed reaction compliment by telling her that you feel, contrary to outward indications, she is truly a little devil, a real fireball at heart. Reiterate this thought frequently in different ways. We know a little blue stocking who, in a few short weeks, became a virtual harridan living for pleasure alone after repeated doses of the above formula. I just love you. In our college days at Old Piltdown U, when we were more or less amateur consultants for other fraternity members, we discovered the value of the simple direct approach as well as its attendant risks. At that time, the vogue in the treatment of co-eds was studied nonchalance. Although little was actually admitted in the bull sessions, CNN reading between the lines came to the conclusion that few among us were getting the bag limit. However, there appeared to be one notable exception, Kirby L., who returned late, night after night, seemingly limp with his success. Pressing the matter closely, we 
cross-questioned him, and he finally told us that, contrary to current practice, he simply told all the girls he met that he just loved them. This naive system had the virtue of novelty at this particular time and apparently brought astonishing results. Deciding not to accept this method without further laboratory proof, we recommended its use to one Everett C., a brother who had been notable for a staggering series of failures in the Dame Department. He submitted to our advice, and two weeks later, he was married on his graduation day. We hear from him each Christmas, and on the card he sends has a picture of himself and his annually increasing family. We think we detect a mean look between the eyes that could be meant for us. So much for the perils and virtues of simplicity. The cavalier approach is frequently successful because women still enjoy being treated as ladies, although they secretly feel that a man is a damn fool for doing it. A woman is most desirous of being treated like a lady just after she has proven she is not. The old gag of treating charwomen like duchesses and duchesses like charwomen may have been fine for the boulevard, but not for the boudoir. Sometimes it is fun to treat a bum like a princess, but if she embraces the part too enthusiastically, you can waste a whole evening before she comes to your senses. She may be impressed, grow sentimental, and try to remember how she used to say no. We suppose it is possible for a bachelor to appear to be a gentleman, although it may incommode him at times. He would do well to conceal this better part of his nature, or he will find that women will impose upon it. This better self should be liberally overlaid with an air of rascality, because a cloak of naughtiness serves to make important things seem inconsequential to both parties involved. Jerome K., a celibataire well known to us, has had results with the dodge of kissing a girl immediately upon his arrival for his first date. She is too surprised to resist. It seems all in good fun, but the preliminaries are now over. The ice is broken and there remains but one point of contention. It is no longer a question of kissing him goodnight and hoping to satisfy him with that, but the battle is already joined. She has lost an outpost and must fall back to the defense of the citadel itself. The perplexing case of Henry H. defies pigeonholing, but it deserves inclusion, so we'll pop it in right about here. Henry best illustrates how apparently disarming merely being polite and pleasant can be. We have observed him fraternizing, and we know that he puts nothing in their drinks, employs no form of mesmerization, matters no threats or bribes, and yet, time and time again, right from under our noses, he has gone off into the night with the prize dish of the evening, and almost as if she had asked him. 
We at one time considered the hypothesis that Henry might actually like women as folks and had some way of communicating this fact to them, as some people seem to be able to talk to birds, but we soon dismissed this notion as preposterous. And yet, omne animale est triste. If any one thing separates the men from the boys among bachelors, it is their conduct immediately following success. There is no denying the letdown. The world's illusion has vanished, and it is Monday morning in your soul and bones. A cigarette or a sandwich has more appeal than Helen of Troy, but the wise man does not betray his real feelings. What may seem to be truth and reality is the greatest delusion of all. Just wait. Valiantly bridge those few moments with a display of affection. Things are never as bad as they seem. You will observe that, contrary to your own inclination, the young lady will be genuinely affectionate. In fact, never more so. At this particular moment, she needs reassurance because she now feels that she may have lost her charm or perhaps mislaid it. To allay such misgivings, the shrewd and gallant thing to do is to telephone her the next day so that she can thank you for the flowers that you dispatched to her earlier that morning. Flowers and candy, prosaic to be sure, like the daily newspaper, are noticed more in their absence. But, but now, since you are panting to get on with this book, turn to the ensuing chapter where you might learn something to your advantage about gifts in general. Chapter 9, Gifts. Better than the gift of gab is a gift itself. A gift might be defined as a three-dimensional flattery, and there is not a woman who breathes whose pulse doesn't quicken at the sight of a beribboned package, the smaller the better. A show of gratitude in a woman is usually spontaneous, sincere, and short-lived, and can be mistaken for passion. In matters of gifts, the bachelor has a position of clear advantage. His offerings have the thrilling, compromising aspects of bribes, while the husband's tardy presents are deserved rewards long overdue. Men are sentimental about women. Women are sentimental about themselves. Their birthdays and anniversaries are affairs of great moment to them and become so consequently to men, especially if they should forget them. Men are phlegmatic about their own natal days, etc. Ask any retail merchant, florist, or jeweler how much business he did on Father's Day. But nothing. Now Mother's Day. There is a real bonanza. And why not? The distaff side will ask in unison with an inevitable reference to something about the best years of their lives. Indignation is a woman's greatest forensic weapon, and for centuries it has carried the day for her in every encounter. Let it be understood that we are not protesting, complaining, or proposing to change things as they are, but merely bringing certain facts to your attention so that you may employ this knowledge to your interest. In other words, women demand 
with a sigh or a longing look, to be sure, largesse or tribute, as their natural heritage, and you, Santa Claus, may as well just go along with the gag. The lavish bargain is a basic principle to hold in mind, and that is always give the best. This may sound expensive, but it isn't necessarily so. For instance, a $10 handkerchief is infinitely better than a $10 blouse. The one is lavish and the other not so much. Choose your categories wisely and be a winner. Bobbles and bangles, jewelry that is, must be rated high on the agenda. It has some negotiable value and is enduring. The act of wearing it serves to remind her of the giver constantly. If you lack the loot to deluge her with diamonds, investigate the costume jewelry of one of the first houses. Labels are of supreme importance. A lesser gift from an elite establishment often carries more prestige than a better article from the wrong side of the tracks. If the gift has a personal touch, some reference to herself, like her zodiacal sign, it will convince her that you have given the matter some consideration. Use her birthstone is it, if it is of semi-precious nature. Your thoughtfulness will modify her peak at your economy. Tender and inventive inscriptions are always in order, and each trinket should contain just enough gold so that gangrene does not set in. The heirloom gag, although slightly mildewed, works on the sentimental doll. A quaint cameo, obtainable in any antique shop, can be invested with some romantic family balderdash and presented ceremoniously. While not as incriminating as an engagement ring, it obliquely hints of the future, family and fireside, and may dispel her native caution. Millionaire's Dilemma Shopping a girl into submission, we admit, perilously resembles true courtship and is an indulgence reserved for the affluent among us. Perhaps now is as good as any time to consider the plight of the wealthy playboy. Some of these poor chaps suffer from a peculiar but understandable form of self-doubt. For instance, if a girl should tell one of the above types that she loves him, he is just neurotic enough to question it. Sheer nonsense. A woman is never more sincere than when she tells a millionaire she loves him. Most women are extremely sentimental about money, but we are quick to note exceptions. Some are not interested in a man for his money. Those heiresses would just as soon have a man without a to his noble family name. The Flabbergaster a bachelor baron of Bel Air, jaded by success, in an inspired moment came up with this gift twist. Something under her pillow. And this on the first night out. Presumptuous to be sure, but also provocative and titillating. The take-it-for-granted air, he found, made protests seem belated and naive. 
his consummate gall either fascinated or intimidated his victims. The most unsettling feature of this act was its very preposterousness. It brought about acquiescence through hilarity, if we can believe him. Chapter 10, See and in Grab Bag. Tattooing. Acknowledging the primitive instinct to mutilate oneself in a decorative manner to impress others, we have devised our own tattoos which remove the pain and the consequence of these strange whims. The CNN tattoo is unique in that it is no tattoo at all, but looks like the real thing. Actually, they are cleverly designed decomanias in assorted designs cleverly devised by a Japanese houseboy formerly in our employ. Their prime virtue is that they will not come off, but will endure until you use our special solvent, Smirnoff 4711. The choice of design should vary with your situation. For instance, to excite tenderness in a girl's bosom, perhaps the conventional mother surmounting your social security number would suggest that you are a good homeboy as well as employed without your doing anything overt to establish this estimate in the young lady's mind. If, for some reason, you wish to kindle jealousy in her bosom, another girl's name might do the trick and at the same time lend a certain glamour beyond your means. Such names as Ava, Lana, Grace, etc. might awaken her to some unsuspected hidden merit not previously apparent. Restraint should be the watchword in the employment of the tattoo ruse. It is a rather precious approach and should be not used if all is well, but only if you are at a complete loss for some angle to jostle her wakefulness. The whole shooting match could boomerang badly if you have appraised the girl wrongly. Perhaps we should explain right here that the real inspiration for our temporary tattoo came from learning of the sad plight of Mo D. We happened upon Mo one rainy afternoon at the club, just as he emerged from the shower room. Seeing us, he hastily drew his towel across his chest in what can be construed as a modest gesture. Our curiosity was so piqued by his furative behavior that we found ourselves inviting him to have a drink with us. As the afternoon dribbled on, Moe's tongue loosened, and he had confided to us that a year or so ago, he had endured the pain of being tattooed, and all because of a woman. Since she had accused him of being fickle in a fit of undying devotion, he had had her name etched in clear bodai letters across his facade. The irony of fair decreed that she would choose that very evening at Ciro's to inform him that she no longer cared to see him. When Mo began frantically clawing at his shirt front to reveal to her the extent of his affection, she went screaming from the dance floor while a trombone player and three waiters subdued him prior to flinging him halfway to Moncombo, where he spent the rest of the night mumbling over some Cesaracs. When we reminded Mo that the world is filled with women and that he might find another with the same name, he looked at us scornfully and silently removed the towel. 
we read Jacille Warbijak Piffle. We confess that this narrowed the field somewhat, and he said that you're damn right well it did. When we ventured that perhaps a reconciliation was in order, Mo only shook his head. It seems that Miss Piffle had decided to change her name and did not wish to be reminded of her former one in any way. She is now pursuing a film career as one Scarlet Slovak and having quite a go at it, as you darn well know. Astrology. Astrologers seem to know more than astronomers. An astrologer only needs to know what day it is in an old almanac to come up with the most amazing things. Prophecies, warnings, and the like. By comparison, astronomers are an uninformed lot, always running to the nearest telescope to look at the same old stars. One of the most remarkable things that a good astrologer can do is write a blanket forecast for every man, woman, and child born during a certain period of 30 days of any year. Presuming on this latitude of practice in an otherwise exact science, we have prepared our own CNN horoscopes. We offer two kinds. First, an all-around buckshot type related to romantic activity in general, and second, a custom number designed for your particular girl with her birth date, day, month, year, and hour, all calibrated to a fine point. This latter celestial chart will show that not only are the stars and planets propitious for l'amour, but that her actions are preordained and she would be offending the heavens and old Evangeline Adams herself if she were to continue to hold out another day. Crystal Ball If your cupcake is reasonably superstitious, the fortune teller twist may be helpful. The main idea is to get to him first. While not actually dishonest, you will perhaps find the Swami congenial for, shall we say, $5. Apart from enumerating your fine qualities, if he suggests that you are about to inherit a considerable sum of money, this will have a heartening effect on the lady. But, for the clincher, if you wish to go so far, the seer could also predict an early demise for you. Most women fancy themselves in black, continental and all. Handwriting For any of you dear readers who think that handwriting analysis is a phony bit, take heed and listen. It is truly frightening what one of these experts, even those found in bars and restaurants, can tell from a few written words. So unless your character is sans reproach, don't submit in the company of any girl you have hopes about, or at least don't use your own handwriting. A few hours diligently spent can give anybody reasonably adroit with a pencil a fair facsimile of the hand of some great genius, examples of which, living or dead, are easily found in the public library. Don't, however, choose loosely any name that just happens to be well known to you. The following story should be sufficient warning. Homer Q. came to us for a bit of coaching before his first date with a stock girl at Warner Brothers towards whom he had nothing but the warmest of feelings and the blackest of intentions. 
this girl didn't like playboys, but admired men who could do creative things. She was especially fond of music. Homer informed us that he, too, had an insatiable appetite for all things cultural. Taking our cue from this, we suggested that Homer take her to the Stunned Ox, where they had duo pianist and a handwriting expert to take care of any lulls in the conversation. We thought it a brilliant stroke when we hit upon the idea for the two days prior to the evening in question, Homer should bone up on the handwriting of some great musician. That Homer chose Richard Wagner for his chicanery was his own doing and not our responsibility. When he came complaining to us that Wagner in his private life was an unscrupulous, foul, two-timing scoundrel, we tried to console him by saying we thought it remarkable that he should happen upon someone so like himself, sharing all his personal traits and having talent besides. Homer seemed to take umbrage at this and departed shortly thereafter. Later, we sat down to a choice Chateaubriand for two, each holding a cold portion to his cheek while quietly regarding the other with his good eye and pondering the folly of philanthropy. Hypnotism. The recent wide interest aroused in the public mind by experiments in hypnotism makes it necessary for us to state our position in this regard. There is something clinical about the use of hypnotism that is repugnant to us. If a girl doesn't like you without taking an anesthetic, we say the hell with it. We abandoned the use of hypnotism as something sneaky and underhanded after barely five years of experimentation. We found, with few exceptions, that these women who would submit to it willingly were suggestible enough on a conscious level to make its use unnecessary, and the rest couldn't be hypnotized anyway. A case in point is the sad and ludicrous story of Heathcliff B. Heathcliff, who was the owner of a number of fine income apartments on Beverly Glen, which he had built after futilely trying to acquire ownership of the Girls' Studio Club in Hollywood. His tenants were carefully screened, all female, under 25, and most of the time only seasonably employed, which made rent day a thing for speculation. By some oversight, there was one independent young lady of means who would have been a beauty without her glasses. She easily resisted Heathcliff's blandishments so that he at last resorted to hypnotism, contrary to our warnings. She was the intellectual type and submitted with alchemy while he twirled a Phi Beta Key reproduction. While she was under the spell, he made the post-hypnotic suggestion that, upon wakening, she would think she was Diamond Lil. When roused, she blinked a couple of times and then, looking at her fingernails, said out of the side of her mouth, Hello, handsome. Where'd you get those cute, narrow shoulders? As Heathcliff was about to reply, the kitchen door opened and Mike, the janitor, came in to fix the faucet. Spying him, she purred, strutted over, and said, Kiss me, big boy. Mike obliged at some length, and then she suggested that they leave Junior and go upstairs. Two days later, Heathcliff heard that they were in Acapulco, cooing and billing, and she was footing the bills. He was disconsolate when he came to see us, 
bemoaning his loss. Really, Heathcliff, old boy, why be greedy? You still have a house full of talent at that resort of yours. But you don't understand, he said. Janitors like Mike are hard to find. See and end ear funny. This inexpensive device lends a man the appeal of the bird with a broken wing, and, like a black patch over one's eye, has, for some obscure reason, a glamorous effect. It seems to excite pity in the female breast, and may start the chain of reaction of pity to tenderness to passion, a process that is a reversal of the usual order of romantic events. The CNN earphony is a lightweight black plastic article resembling the genuine thing, but without the complexities of batteries, grids, filaments, etc., being, what the name implies, a dummy piece. We originally attended it for our bachelor's clientele, but now our greatest demand comes from the married men. Yielding to their clamor, we have produced a modification of the original. The married man's model ensures deafness in one ear, since it is nothing more or less than an earplug. The more artful of our earphony users will pretend to complain of its inefficiency while enjoying its virtues. Its greatest appeal for the bachelor is that he can hear what he chooses. For instance, when leaving her apartment on a date, he can cheerfully ask where to and then take her to a cheaper spot than the one she named since she might be hesitant to remind him of his sad affliction. Even better, later that night, he can feign not to hear her urgently whispered no, no, and smilingly prevail when she says to herself in resignation, oh, what the hell? Dream Man. Some people still go to the theater. It is a pleasant ice-breaking maneuver for a first date. Television may surpass the legitimate theater and films in the manner of convenience and economy, but not socially. The average girl has access to her own TV set and probably has conjunctivitis from staring at it night after night, waiting for the phone to ring. The term to go out with a man means what it says, hence the theater still has its place unless you live in New York and can afford $6.60 and up per copy, you might as well take her to a movie house or one of those open-air brothels called drive-ins. The dark privacy of the theater can be wasted if, by chance, you take her to see her dream man. If she goes on about Marlon Brando too much, begin to drool over the leading lady of the piece. This should shut her up. If she persists, let her open the car door for herself and see how she likes it. And now, since you have painstakingly committed to memory or sedatiously employed much of the foregoing advice, gimmicks, dodges, etc., this inevitably brings you to your probable reward, which is... Chapter 11. A Woman's No. Most women are apt to say no to advances at the onset, but there are usually implicit overtones of maybe to the well-tuned male ear. Any man who takes a girl at her word is foolish, and even the girl herself will regard him as a disappointing antagonist. All girls will haggle like a second-hand car dealer and expect to run for their money. 
the seasoned mail campaigner will merely affect not to hear until things take a turn for the better and then close the deal quickly. Naturally, an attitude of refusal can only make an object more desirable and, in this way, she contributes to your fuller pleasure ultimately. Complete and ready acquiescence would make most huntsmen feel nonplussed for a quick moment and bring about a feeling of having been cheated of the sport of the game. Talk if you must, but remember, it is easier for a woman to consent actually than verbally. Consent through conversation alone is humiliating as well as bloody unlikely. The game-wise bachelor rarely tries for an explicit yes, but plays for the incriminating but thrilling, oh, but we shouldn't. Observe the we, you have been included, and the shouldn't, implying we are about to. Equally encouraging is a series of muffled no's. Generally, the word no is meaningless and is used merely to set up the tempo of progress, like the measured cadence of a coxswain. Compared with the great variety of approaches and lines, there are very few ways for a woman to say no. Even she may become embarrassed with the monotony of her dialogue. It is advisable to remind her of her lack of invention at every opportunity. In contrast with your own wealth of imagery, fervor, and enthusiasm, her flat negative can give her little pleasure. In seeking to qualify or soften it, she may compromise herself ever so slightly. This is the cue to hammer a wedge into the gap and make her fall back to previously prepared positions. Another way of saying that she is fighting a nice losing battle. In the seclusion of your apartment, when things are moving forward and your overtures are well received, it is important to circumvent interruption. A vital trifle to keep in mind is the disposition of her handbag. It should always be kept well out of her reach. In that magpie's nest, which is a woman's purse, lies a veritable arsenal of defense weapons. Comb, powder, lipstick, nail file, cigarette holder, etc. So immobilize her and do not permit her to fence and parry with any of the above articles of war. Psychologists say that an attitude or gesture can beget a frame of mind. A woman never seems so unassailable as when she is combing her hair or putting on lipstick. The tempo of things is broken by such feminine gestures. Therefore, don't let her terminate happy hostilities with such ease. Muss her up a little. Get her shoes off, because there is something erotic in a mild disarray of her person, which even she will sense. If a small repair job seems futile, she may relax and accept the situation. Precipitation normal. To a husband, tears are a means of ordinary communication. But in the presence of a bachelor, teardrops are infrequent and usually the indication of some temporary emotional upset. 
Girls can cry at the drop of a hat. It is a favorite form of self-expression. They actually enjoy it. To have a good cry is strictly a feminine notion. There is no doubt that crying, or worse, sobbing, can hold up or cancel the game on wet grounds. Joy and tears may be compatible. Pleasure and tears are not. Only a cad, and 50% of us are not, would refuse to accept the above truth philosophically. Here, we say, you might as well be gallant, and as sometimes happens, she may call the next day to apologize and hint at another chance. Mascara is a hindrance to weeping, for not only does it make a pretty girl look like a raccoon, but it has a tendency to smart and burn. Few women who I, whose eyes are laden with the stuff will frivolously resort to tears. It is wise to encourage the use of mascara through the simple act of flattery. Girls cry, men talk. What the catcher really says to the pitcher when he walks out to the mound, or what actually goes on in a Notre Dame huddle, have long been subjects for speculation, but no more so than man talk is to the inquisitive female. Most any girl would love to be a mouse in a men's locker room for an hour or so, whereas no self-respecting male would give a Christmas necktie to overhear the chatter that goes on in the powder room. This is probably because the girls have nothing to say of a personally revealing nature. The reason for this difference is that the confession is painful while bragging is fun. What is a conversation piece for the man is a source of nail-biting for the woman. There is, consequently, little Monday morning quarterbacking among the girls. The pleasures of open retrospection are taboo. In speaking of the same thing, the boys enjoy themselves and the girls squirm. Men talk is kind of a clearinghouse for the boys. Whereas it is not considered cricket to kiss and tell, nevertheless, silence itself is incriminating and an admission of failure is humiliating. In large groups, it is regarded as bad taste to be blunt, hence innuendo is the order of the day. But if an eyebrow is lifted out of context, a girl's reputation may become wobbly. First off, let us remind you that a good listener never interrupts. This applies pertinently and peculiarly to men talk. To get to the point, you are at your club enjoying a drink after putting in a hard day on the back nine. Some tiger muscle blowhard comes plopping in from the shower room, downs your drink by mistake, of course, and as he dries himself off, somehow gets on the subject of his gal's charm and talent in the boudoir, sparing no details. If you are able to forget that you know her as well as he does, and merely listen with a kind of non-committal interest, all is well. But by chance, should you get carried away by his enthusiasm and unwittingly say something like, boy, she sure is, then please call us when you are able to get about again and we will point out just where you made your mistake. Chapter 12, 
off the hook. There are certain danger signs which the knowing bachelor perceives but quickly, like a good boxer who watches the other guy's hands rather than his eyes. Our man knows that it is not what the young lady says, but what she does that counts. Circumstantial evidence is far more weighty than the direct testimony of her lips. She may not only deceive you, but herself. In order to distinguish between mere fervor and sincerity, it is necessary to keep a wary eye on what may seem, at first glance, to be trifling details. We shall try to be more specific. If a girl tells you she loves you in the straightforward manner of an accomplished liar, this need not deeply concern you. But if she reveals her affection casually in little ways, then there may be a cause for alarm. For instance, if she unconsciously clutches your arm and stays close in the presence of other attractive men, she may genuinely be afflicted, so be careful. It can be contagious. Further signs, such as stroking your hair in public, fussing with your tie or handkerchief, wanting to shop for you, and barraging you with cute, unnecessary phone calls, all these are, are grave indications that things are not as they should be. The time to make your move is at hand. When she says that you are the most incredibly wonderful man she has ever known, don't let this worry you. She may just respect you, and this has little to do with female love. But if the statement is accompanied by a pair of socks, which she knit herself, then drop her while she pearls too. There comes a moment in an affair when one party or the other wants out, and it could happen to you. This has little application to one night stands, but only to affairs of some duration where face saving is involved. It is peculiarly a man's problem. When a girl decides she has had it, she is traditionally permitted to be forthright and brutal and need only say, goodbye, au revoir, adios, get lost. And no one censures her, but if the man in the case indulges in such forthright language, he is a blackguard and just not nice. He can't cut through the canal here, but he has to go around the horn every time. To let a girl down easy requires the utmost subtlety and resourcefulness. The main thing is, of course, to make her think it is her idea. As we have already implied, a man must be devious rather than direct in extricating himself from the treacly clutches of an acquisitive female. He must provoke certain emotions or state of mind in her prior to his taking off. These are, in the main, indignation, boredom, and disgust. Generally, any one of these conditions will suffice, but one can parlay them if need be.
The first mentioned indignation is the quickest aroused. Sometimes a word or a remark is sufficient and the effect, if taken at the flood, may be all that is required for you to be off and running. The lavish praise of some other woman of your acquaintance, or better, the paying of undue attention to her girlfriend, if she has one, may serve. Whatever the cause, the result will be the same. In her heat, she will send you about your business. Taking her at her word, you will leave and be scrupulously deaf the next few days to the incessant ringing of the telephone if it is inconvenient for you to leave town. She can console herself that it was her doing and thereby keep her vanity in good repair. Escape with Flowers Pasquale C., by collaborating with his florist, could ease himself almost overnight by the simple act of sending a beautiful bouquet of expensive flowers exceeding anything previously given her. In the attached sealed envelope, he enclosed his card bearing an overly mushy declaration of his undying love, but surmounted with the name of another girl, all, of course, written in his own unmistakable hand. Since he found this method infallible, although expensive, he tapped it with a master stroke, economically speaking. Knowing that the first female impulse upon receiving a floral tribute is to read the card, he invested in some superb facimile flowers tenaciously stapled in a stout cellophane wrapping and consequently was able to use these again and again because the irate recipient of the posies invariably returned them by special messenger within the hour. Heavenly Boredom John M., Pursuing the gentler but more tedious release via boredom, hatched this effective though elaborate disenchantment. As the young lady's prosecution of the affair vigorously waxed as his interest waned, he would extract from its hiding place a second-hand, lightweight, portable reflecting telescope and profess great enthusiasm for the study of astronomy, giving her a garbled salad of conversation laced with flamsteed numbers, parallaxes, transits, and synergies. He would not deign to notice her frequent yawns and finger-tapping, but would plunge from the obscure to the nebulous with unrelenting zeal. If talk alone didn't accomplish his ends, he would pack her off with him, telescope and all, to some draughty hilltop on a chilly, cloudless night for several hours if searching for a remote twin star scarcely visible in the 200-incher at Mount Palomar. His own instrument had a cloudy, flaking mirror that revealed nothing of interest whatsoever, providing against awakening her appetite for what might be a fascinating hobby properly pursued. Most of the time, he would hog the eyepiece, exclaiming at wonder at what he saw, and then suddenly he would tell her to quick look at what invariably proved to be a smear of blankness. 
When she complained that she could see nothing, he would impatiently chide her for disturbing the focus as he elaborately readjusted the lens. He would conclude the evening in the wee hours of the morning by leaving her on her doorstep, chilled to the bone, while he obliviously dashed home, supposedly to report by phone to the nearest observatory about a supernova he had pretended to discover in Scorpio. John Inn found that a repeat performance was rarely necessary. A bored voice would answer his next call to inform him that she would be busy for the next week or so, and would he please try some other time. He accepted this in hurt, humble tones and never called again. To bring about the third propitious emotional state, namely disguise, we offer a CNN subterfuge, which we discovered inadvertently. To bring about the third propitious emotional state, namely disgust, we offer a CNN subterfuge, which we discovered inadvertently. Bathroom bit. Securitous as it may seem, it has been known to bring about an abrupt end to an affair without making issues or having words. Leave your bathroom, as it usually is, without troubling to clean up the following. Brush and comb with loose hair, assorted salves, ointments labeled for various afflictions, rings in bathtub, shower stall full of dirty laundry, old razor blades rusting in sink, used wet towels lying in water on floor, cigarette butts in soap dish, frayed toothbrush in cloudy water glass. If the normal untidiness of the above picture is not sufficiently distressing to her because she is not fastidious herself, then add a heaping portion of these fury-rousing effects. Pair of nylons on shower rail. Two partially filled martini glasses containing withered olives. Half-smeared message in lipstick on mirror saying, Good morning, darling on your way out. This section we consider one of our best, and it is written with considerable authority. There is that moment of sure fit in which even a cordon blue plate special suddenly becomes garbage and warmed over it is never quite the same. Somehow, you will know when this happens to you, so in spite of lame attempts on her part to conceal it, scrape yourself off and out you go. Chin up, stout fellow, and above all, don't blubber. You may choose to disregard the obvious signs of her new attitude, but not for long. She will make it painfully obvious sooner or later. Whereas your slightest remark used to gain her eager attention, now, if you set yourself on fire, she wouldn't notice anything burning. What would have been a bombshell only a week before will concern her no more than the rising price of jute in the South Sea Islands. Now that you've started sprouting left feet, the better to swallow, you will now discover the combined talents of Goodman Ace and S.J. Perriman couldn't get a sickly grin out of her if you are the one giving out with the stuff. When the dearest become dear, beware. And when your Christian name starts popping up too frequently, it is 
but a step to Mr. C or Mr. N or what are your initials anyway. The fact that she is doing none of these things deliberately but cannot help herself will make it no more palatable. When you see the handwriting on the wall and you feel the romance getting a bit drafty from her side, make the first move yourself. One, it will be good for your morale. Two, she might just come around, but we doubt it. At best, you might gain a reprise. The main thing is not to stand upon your leaving, for though she feels a certain tenderness on her part may be in order, and that she must be gentle with you, remember that fundamentally she now regards you as a low form of life which she would rather like to kill with a stick. The idea that two people should actually be in love with each other at one and the same time is demanding too much of coincidence. At this moment, you may feel that some exhibition of indifference is required for effect. Indifference of the kind we have in mind must be assumed or put on. True indifference requires no thought, but to affect it is another matter. If you observe your girlfriend closely, do not think that hers is a flawless technique, for you are observing the genuine article. In order to show your indifference properly as you drive by her house, keep your gaze straight ahead. This is a good idea anyway, because at this moment, you have undoubtedly become distraught and accident prone. We feel that passing her house twice a day is sufficient. We do not regard it as too feasible if she lives on a dead-end street. You must stifle the urge to phone her. Do not seize upon trifling excuses to call. Even legitimate reasons can be misconstrued. For instance, after recent conquered temps with a darling little blonde, a friend of ours had suddenly decided to collect matchbook covers and remembering perfectly well leaving some matches advertising Pepsi Cola, which might soon become collector's items, he rang up. Needless to say, this egocentric young lady assumed that it was merely a ruse to talk to her. Hence, we advise, even in such urgent cases as this, perhaps it is better not to call at all. It is really useless to show her because, remember, she is not looking. Just because what you had thought was the dalliance of eagles turned out to be a snipe hunt, don't become too engrossed with suffering or you will overlook a strange advantage that may now present itself. At this moment, you have a fascination for girls who don't really interest you. Your torch is a challenge to them and they will try to douse it for you. They resent the fact that you think any other girl is that desirable. This resentment works for you, but don't go on about her too much or they will start to swallow the yawn and you will play miss out on the ultimate commiseration they are about to offer. Nothing will soften your groans more surely than the passage of time. The length of the cure varies with the temperament of the afflicted. A graduate bachelor can usually recover from one of these seizures by closing his eyes and lying down for 20 minutes. 
Build up the hours spent out of contact with the cause of your grief and let her wait. You'll be amazed at her patience. It's rather like killing a turtle with a broom. We know, but you'll get over it finally. Chapter 13. Nice Girl Unrequited love is the natural consequence of associating with nice girls. Of all the women a man may encounter, we believe the nice girl to be the most dangerous. She is really the villain of this piece, hence we shall devote an entire chapter to this creature. No man is secure from her. To be her victim means either pain or matrimony forgive our redundance, and with the latter unpleasantness, your career as a bachelor comes to an inglorious end. She comes along like a late upstate return and upsets all your plans. She gets a ring on the finger and you get one in your nose. We did not include the nice girl in our previous classifications because she might be any one of these or a combination of several. The name Nice Girl itself is inadequate, but after thrashing about, we can come up with nothing better. She clouds the mind and stays the tongue. She may not be nice at all, but at any rate, you will think so. And believe it or not, she may not resemble your mother in any way. For centuries, in fact, and fiction, she has roamed roughshod over man's affections, ignoring or setting aside the law of diminishing returns which ordinarily forestalls rashness in men's behavior. She brings with her a sickness not unlike alcoholism, for with her one kiss is too many and a thousand not enough. Loath as we are to associate ourselves with moderation in any form, here we must go on to say that you completely abstain. The nice girl is as deadly as a mongoose. This simpering creature can be your undoing unless recognized early. All the wiles and ways advanced in this book will not help you against this one. A dewy look, a touch of your fingertip, and everything is lost. She does not fight fairly. In fact, she doesn't fight at all. It is like trying to go ten fast rounds with a Quaker. She turns the other cheek and you, you dope, you kiss it. What else is there to do? You find yourself remembering her birthday, St. Valentine's Day. You start inventing holidays in order to give her something you can't afford in exchange for something you can't have. Other girls who deny you nothing get that just in return, but this one. How do you recognize her? She may not be quite as pretty as the rest, like hell she's not, nor as sexy, hmm, but there's usually something about her eyes. They are just kind of somehow. It's really hard to say just what she looks like. For all we can tell, she might even look like our secretary, Miss Ampersand. The way you really know her is by the following absurd symptoms. If holding her hand seems to be a pleasure in itself, watch out. 
if you find yourself phoning her for no reason at all, beware. If you detect any desire on your part for self-improvement, heads up. If you begin to think you are not good enough for her, believe it and run for the hills. If you find yourself patting little children on their heads and loving the whole world and all that's in it, get a hold of yourself, boy. Celestial Podiums. One of the surest signs that you have met your nice girl will be your inclination to pay, place her on a pedestal. You will do this, strangely enough, not to impress her, but yourself. Once you get her up there on that pinnacle, you will stand in rapt wonder before your own handiwork. Pedestals, as we know, are used to raise objects which lack elevation in themselves. A woman is placed there to afford a more interesting view of her, and finding herself there, she can do nothing but look down upon you. While you may see the best aspect of her, she is enjoying the worst of you. A certain chap close to us, Teddy H by name, can get a girl up on a pedestal faster than a mouse can get her on a kitchen stool. Most of his pedestals, however, were of the jerry-built collapsible type as common as rented chairs from a funeral hall. In fact, some were so insubstantial that his whole routine was more nearly like a levitation act, and the sound of falling bodies was sometimes deafening. Unfortunately, most men do not have the pragmatic, healthy outlook of Teddy H, for they construct their pedestals solidly and succeed in making that which was ready at hand now seem unattainable. Perhaps you have placed yourself in just such a predicament. If so, at this point, an outlandish notion may present itself to your now distraught mind. Yours is the desperation of a castaway who is ready to drink seawater. The monstrous thought occurs to you that you might win her over if you were to ask her to marry you. But you may be in for a rude shock. Imagine your dismay if she refuses. You would be amazed at the number of girls who actually do not wish to marry you. On the other hand, imagine your dismay if she accepts. Gosh, I don't know about you big fellas, but my head is just spinning from all that information in the little black book. I may need some help to lie down. Oh, and the fact that some of those big words, those big, burly, manly words, really seem to trip me up today. More than walking on four-inch heels. Say, before I go, I just wanted to give you a big old thank you for taking the time to listen to little old me. And I can't wait to do this again real soon. Call me. Boop, boop, be doo
Chapter two, how to meet girls. Statisticians maintain, statisticians, statisticians, hi, statisticians.